Hello, welcome back to the Minor Prophets series. So far, we've looked at the books of Jonah, Amos and Hosea. This week, we're focusing on the book of Micah. Micah came from the town of Moresheth in Judah, southwest of Jerusalem. Other than that, we are not told anything else about the man himself. The book doesn't tell us how God called him. His name can be translated as a question which asks, Who is like Yahweh? Micah's prophecy came during the years of kings Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah of Judah, who ruled between 750 BC and 687 BC. Hosea and Isaiah prophesied at roughly the same time. The main themes of Micah are God's judgment and forgiveness. In this book we will discover the prophecy about Jesus' birthplace and meet the Messiah as the Good Shepherd. The book opens with a pronouncement against Jerusalem and Samaria, announcing to them that God is bringing his witness against them, like a kind of lawsuit. In the same way that a prosecutor outlines his case, God will bring charges against his people and back them up with evidence. From chapter 2, God starts to set out his case. His people have dealt cruelly and unjustly with their fellow men. Out of greed and jealousy, they have desired what belongs to others and taken it for themselves, both houses and fields. False prophets have arisen amongst the people, speaking words that do not come from God. The prophets speak what the people want to hear for their own pride and gain. In verse 11, Micah sarcastically says that a prophet who promised plenty of alcoholic beverages would be just the kind of prophet the people desired. The rulers of Israel are criticised for doing evil, abusing the people they're supposed to be ruling and despising justice. The leaders accept bribes, the priests preach for money and the prophets accept cash for false fortune-telling. The whole society is twisted and corrupt, so far from the way God intended them to be. Judgment will fall on Jerusalem and Samaria in the form of invading armies of the Assyrians and Babylonians. In chapter 4, the mood suddenly changes to one of future promise. In verse 1, Micah says that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all peoples will stream to it. The phrase in the last days is often found in prophetic writing and it usually refers to a time in the future beyond the present era, sometimes referring to the time of the coming of the Messiah. Micah foresees a time when God will restore Jerusalem and make it a focal point for the gathering of the nations. Instead of climbing to high places to worship pagan false gods, the people will make the ascent to the dwelling place of God and worship him alone. Verse 3 of chapter 4 is quite famous. In it, Micah prophesies that the nations of the world will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Unprecedented peace will come to the world in the last days when the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, ushers in his new kingdom. These same words are found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 4. It is possible that Isaiah and Micah used a shared source for this, or one may have borrowed this thought from the other. In chapter 5, we find intriguing prophecies about the coming Messiah. Verse 2 is often read at Christmas time. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. King David came from Bethlehem and was an unlikely choice to be king by external worldly measures. Bethlehem was a small town with nothing really going for it. Several hundred years later, the greater David, the Messiah, Jesus, was born in this same small town. The Jews anticipated that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, based on this prophecy in Micah. Yet they didn't recognise him when he arrived, as he didn't come in the way they expected. Ironically, it seems that the Jews alive at the time of Jesus knew him as the carpenter of Nazareth in Galilee, ignorant of the fact that his birthplace was in Bethlehem. You can read more about this in the seventh chapter of John's Gospel. This coming Messiah is pictured as one who will shepherd his flock, his people, and bring them unprecedented peace. In chapters 6 and 7, God continues his lawsuit against his people. The charges now include corrupt business practices, disloyalty and betrayal within families, violence and falsehood. The downfall and destruction of Jerusalem is foretold. However, there is the promise of hope and restoration. In chapter 7, verse 9, the city of God speaks with a prophetic voice. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath, until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. The book ends with a rhetorical question that echoes the meaning of Micah's name. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again show compassion to us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In the Bible, the language of the courtroom and legal process is loaded with significance. God is the ultimate judge, and he is always just in his judgments. He cannot just ignore sin and wrongdoing, or sweep it under the carpet. Where there has been a wrong, a judgment must be pronounced and a sentence served. In the New Testament, we encounter the concept of justification. This is also a legal term. To justify someone means to acquit them, to declare them righteous. The Bible teaches us that God justifies us by grace. In other words, he declares us righteous, although we do not deserve it. The penalty for our sin still had to be paid, and Jesus did this for us, taking our sins upon himself in his death on the cross. So sinful people can be pronounced just because Jesus paid for or atoned for our sins. The penalty is paid, justice is done. Justification doesn't mean that God lets us off for our sins or acts as if we'd never sinned. It means that God's holiness demanded a payment for our sin and God himself provided the means of this payment through the death of Jesus on our behalf. Justice and mercy meet together and love and grace are seen most clearly on the cross. God issues his people with a challenge in chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These words have timeless relevance, and if you would like to see how Christians are working out this truth in the world today, have a look at www.micachallenge.org. 
Micah Challenge is a coalition of Christians who take their inspiration from this verse in Micah and campaign on issues of justice. They are working to hold governments accountable for the promises they made to the poorest people in the world in the year 2000, when the Millennium Development Goals were set. If you need some inspiration or resources to help you get engaged with issues of justice, poverty and action, have a look at their website. If you are involved with a local church, think about how you could encourage people in your fellowship to take practical steps to speak up for those who are denied justice. Love is demonstrated in action, and we are all called to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with God. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers www.partakers.co.uk where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.